I'm very thankful for, uh, I think, Jeff Martin. Some of you know Jeff Martin, right? He, uh, he made sure I got backstage in time because I had no idea. So thanks to him, that moment came about. But did you see Elsie? Man, we have so many talented kids in our church. I was thinking this morning about Elsie and Kellen and then uh, the Mac boys and, and all the kids that do uh, gymnastic things and sports. It's incredible, and uh, it's a lot. Uh, Shelby and Anna and skating and Liza. Man, it, musically, you see some of these kids, it's incredible. Give them a high five. They put in so much work, man. Like, those kids... And it's tough on parents, too, because we're trying to balance, like, how do we spend family time and how do we make sure our kids see everything is the kingdom uh, while also got to be at practice, got to be at games. I'm looking at some of you parents because you know it's like, yeah, this is like, this is real life. It's tough. Like, so anyway, you have my heart. We're praying with you, uh, and I'm praying, too, that we don't mess up this whole parenting thing for sports and dance and things that are busy. But that's it. That was my, that was my best shot at explaining that video, <laughs> making a connection. Hey, uh, I want to pray. We're going to get continue talking about the words of Jesus. Grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab a hardback black one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Say that every week. We want you to have a Bible. Words of God are important. Uh, well, they're everything. That's what we're going to be talking about today, actually. We're going to be talking about the entire Bible today because Jesus uh, says, hey, uh, I've come to fulfill all of this. And it was a very shocking thing. Jesus spitting some fire, man. He's going to start saying things every week that make us squirm. This one should make us squirm than it does, but we're not, you know, Hebrew, most of us, probably any of us, and so then we don't, like, connect with, with this in the same heaviness that we should, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. Grab a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew 5. I want to pray this morning. I invite you uh, during this time of prayer uh, to talk to the Lord as well. God can hear multiple of our souls crying out at once because he's that big. Uh, some things on my heart, Betty Binky's in the hospital, and although she's very, very thankful and joyful and such a wonderful person to visit, uh, it's hard. It's hard when you are elderly and have to be in the hospital and have to go to rehab and potentially have to move to assisted living or have those conversations. Uh, Miss Bonnie is in all those conversations. We prayed for a couple weeks ago, and several of you know other things, uh, family members, people that are on our hearts, people that are traveling. As we pray together, right now. I want us to make sure like, we're one body. And if you're watching from home, if you're new, if you're not a part uh, of our church specifically, we want to, you to join in praying with us because the Lord tells us that if we're in Christ, we're one body. We're all connected and we're bringing the unity of the kingdom through Jesus Christ together. And so for moments like this, when we pray, we're not just praying so that pastors pray before sermons because that's what we do. You know, we need a few breathers here of prayer. No, no, no. We're taking a moment for all of us to come together and mind each other. We stand before Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. We stand before the Lord because of Jesus, and we're bringing to him all the struggles, all the heaviness we have, all the tension of visiting family for Memorial Day weekend, whatever it is, whatever it is we've got. We all stand together as one before that. It's not just Miss Cheryl and Steve praying to God right now. It's all of us as one body. Join me as we pray. Father, we come to you right now as one body, as your people in Jesus. And I pray that you would help us believe in your fulfillment of scripture, in, your, uh, in, in you as Messiah, that you would help us believe that we are one, that your kingdom has come, and that you are continuing to make things new in Jesus. God, help us to connect with those ideas. We pray for uh, Miss Betty, uh, Miss Bonnie, uh, those who are hurting, hospitalized, the tensions that surround holiday weekends, the heaviness, uh, the meaning that they have towards us, the tension of trying to understand uh, how to memorialize things, but also to point to you and seek a king and a kingdom uh, over a nation and a flag, and all those things we can't even put words to because it's difficult. God, we open our hands to you and say, we want to worship you, Father. We trust you and we love you. And above all things, we want to say you're king. You tell us you're with us always and you have all authority. And I pray that you'd help us to draw near to that, to you this morning. May your spirit guide us. Give us ears to hear as we read your word. Amen. We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and we said, um, when you, this is so important, I'm going to do this every week, so we'll always get this answer right. When we think of Jesus, what are we thinking about? Kingdom. Kingdom. Say it. Everyone say it. Kingdom. 
Kingdom. Kingdom. Say it real loud like you really mean it. Kingdom. Kingdom. This is so important. I could stop every week, two minutes in the sermon, and just leave it at that because you're going to forget it. You've been taught so much of your life probably to not think about it that way. You've been taught personal salvation, personal Jesus. You've been taught, uh, uh, you know, God, family, country, all these little things that aren't the kingdom. And so I want to drill real deep on that and push that home because I guarantee that most of the problems in your life, all the problems in your life, are not actually marriage problems, family problems, parent problems, all the problems in your life are God problems, and all of them come back to you misunderstanding Jesus and therefore misunderstanding his kingdom, right? Or vice versa, misunderstanding the kingdom, misunderstanding Jesus. So we're going to put that up there every week, and we're going to be talking about it, because when you talk about Jesus, you think, what was Jesus teaching? The gospel of the kingdom, over and over and over. And when you see the entire world in light of the kingdom, you don't have time for your selfish little build your 401k and buy a boat and have all the little happiness of your own life and then die and all your stuff gets sold and no one remembers you. You don't have time for that crap because you're thinking about something eternal and everything you do then connects to your kingdom. Man, I just put a lot of heaviness on you. We're like three minutes in. I'm sorry. Uh, welcome to the holiday weekend. Sorry. But this is such a big deal. And so when we read scriptures like what we're about to read and then we get into the next, gosh, the next six, seven, eight weeks, so heavy. So many things Jesus is going to tell us about divorce, about sex, about how we should approach marriage, how we should approach oaths, how we should approach loving people. That we just, they're so foreign to us. They're so heavy. And we want to cheapen it by saying, oh, well, Jesus was just trying to prove that we're all awful slobs and so we just need to have his grace. Yes, but also Jesus expects you to follow him, and he expects you to follow the things he taught, right? And so we have this heaviness. What do we do with it? We're going to be talking about every week how Jesus, when you think of Jesus, you think of the kingdom, right? And that's why Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Jesus believed that he was the fulfillment of all things, that he was bringing to life, that he was bringing to accomplishment everything that anyone had ever hoped for, anyone that everything needed. And that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, Let's see, last week we talked about salt and light. Uh, if you missed it, uh, you can go back and watch that, the podcast on Facebook, all the different places we've got it. But we talked about how that is us. It's not just you individually, that is us together. We are the salt and light, and of course that includes the individual, but you can't think about that without thinking about it corporately. And so it's important to think through not how are you personally the salt and light at your job. Sure, maybe, but first, how are you salt and light with the community of believers? Because then you have some shot at being salt and light outside side. But if you're not inside the kingdom, if you're not inside his church, then salt and light doesn't make any sense to you. And so if we want to be salty and shiny things in Christ, we must be doing that together. That's what Jesus was bringing through the, his kingdom with his church. And then before that, we talked about the Beatitudes, the blessings. I would encourage you to read those because everything's going to come back to this posture, the poor in spirit. We are all in incredible debt. We've got nothing in our bank account. We are separated from God. And so we're poor in spirit, and we need to make sense of that. And Jesus is going to circle that idea uh, almost poetically as he speaks, because everything's going to come back to that first, first phrase. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. And then everything he continues to teach, you end up saying, Hey, oi, That's a, isn't that a Jewish thing? Oi, you know, ah, oh, man, I've really messed this up. Oi, hey, you know, really messed this up, right? And you come back to, ah, but the poor in spirit have the kingdom of God. Those who've really messed it up, those are complete debt. So this heaviness as it comes on you, this debt weighs you down. Jesus said, hey, you're blessed. You have favor with God. We're going to talk more about that. What is your favorite book? Start with that. This is important. We're going to go somewhere with that. Some of you are reader, readers, especially if your name rhymes with Harry Pullivan. Um, but books. Man, I have terrible handwriting. I say it every week, don't I? Books. Favorite book. Oh, Carrie's not in here. Man. Is she the only reader? Someone reads books. Oh, gosh. Don't be that person. <laughs> uh, someone's read a book. That does, uh, high school kids. Come on. Weren't you required to read something? Macbeth. Julius Caesar, thank you. Is that your favorite? We're going to write it. Oh, man. You, could you pick a worse thing for me to have to spell? Julius Caesar. That's close enough. All right. Uh, any but other favorite books? Lord, yes. Ah, may we all stop a moment. For, okay, thank you. Lord of the Rings. You write that L-O-T-R, those of you who are in the know. Other books? Some, someone on this side reads books, I promise. Alex, bad day. That's what you get, Scott. <laughs> All right. What, what? Harry Potter. There we go. Man, you write that HP, those of you who are in the know. 
Yes, now we're getting it. Okay, these are books. These are great books. No one listed any classics, really, aside from Julius Caesar, like things that were written like hundreds of years ago. That's okay. Uh, maybe no one reads in here uh, way back in the day. But uh, there's books that are old that people read, right? Um, what about, uh, let's do this. This is a room full of uh, people who've been in church uh, on and off, so let's do this. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Psalms. Psalms. Well, it's, uh, we're going to do Bible over here. We've got Psalms. James, okay. A little late on that one, but we'll take it. Romans. Romans. Anyone read the Old Testament? Isaiah. Isaiah. <laughs> you repeat it again. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, gosh, Isaiah is one of those words. You know how you learn to spell Isaiah? You think about how, like, British scholars say it. So N.T. Wright, he'll always say, if you turn to Isaiah, that helps. Huh? Huh? Anyone ever say it? So every time I see the word Isaiah, I think, ah, oh, Isaiah. Thank you, N.T. Wright. Anyone else? No? Books. Get to your point, David. Okay, fine. You guys read books. What about, so we all have uh, favorite things to read. Uh, what, okay, one more thing. What's your favorite story in the Bible? Prodigal son. I like that. I'm not going to write that, but anyone else? Esther. Job? Job. That's a tough one, man. Jesus with the little children. My buddy's preaching on that right now. Huh? David and Goliath, that's a big one in my house, man. Everyone loves David and Goliath, right? Like every kid, raise your hand if you're a kid and you don't like that story. Like, come on, what a cool story. And as a, man, if you're bad at teaching kids Bible stories, which I'm, I'm not, I'm not gifted at that, believe it or not. I don't know how to do it. David and Goliath's like the go-to. And all of you children's people are like, ugh, you're a David and Goliath guy. Of course I am, because I don't have anything else. Like, it's so easy to be like, I'm also David, right? So, oh man, good story. Okay. Scripture, all these stories, all these books of the Bible, keep that in mind. We have favorite books, we read literature, people read all through history. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I wish we had more scribes and Pharisees in our culture so that when you heard that line, those of you would look at me and be really offended and upset because that is a very frustrating thing. Imagine preaching that, okay? It's a frustrating sentence that Jesus said. I'm gonna read it one more time because it, it gives me shakes. For I tell you, Jesus talking to all these scalawag people that he's gathered, unless your righteousness exceeds the the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He literally just said, hey, you junky people, y'all get the kingdom. You're favored. And then he says this line, and now all of them feel like, okay, what? Because now there's this tension, right? As we should as well. We're going to just start going through this line by line, talking about it. There's a lot to unpack here. I try to have uh, two or three pages of notes typically. I got four today. Buckle up. We're going to get through it. It's going to be good. Jesus first says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, those of you, uh, maybe we've talked about this before, when Jesus says law, what's he talking about? Torah, right? Law is Torah. Say Torah. Torah, Pentateuch, right? That's the more Western idea, I guess. But uh, uh, Torah was the law. Was, uh, Gen uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, man, pfft, I almost said Romans. Genesis, Exodus, Romans, where am I at? Anyway, uh, that's the Torah. That was the law, right? 613 laws that God gave. We've talked about this so much. We talked about the character of God and Mount Sinai and all this stuff. Carrie and Nikki came up and they explained all of the history of Israel in the most amazing educational moment of your life, right? It was a good time. So uh, we've talked about that. When he says Torah, he's saying laws. Now, then he also throws on this phrase prophets, right? What are the prophets? Yeah, I saw everything else, right? So basically what Jesus is saying is don't think I've come to abolish all the scriptures that you care about, right? And again, in our culture, we have all these books that we read, and I could, if we were not in a room full of uh, people who might 
be naturally inclined to give churchy answers. You can just imagine if we asked the world, what's some of the most formative books you've read? We would get books that don't quite connect to scripture, right? We would get books by Tony Robbins. We'd get books by Who Moved My Cheese? We'd get books, whatever, you know? Do you guys remember the Who Moved My Cheese book? That was a big deal a while ago. Anyway, we'd get these books and they wouldn't be scripture. This is when Jesus says law and prophets. He's saying all these things you've been reading your whole life, that you think are most important, don't think I've come to abolish them. What does abolish mean? It means to formally put to end. Uh, the Hebrew or the Greek words here mean to like untie, to push down, to, dis- to dissolve. And so Jesus, there's this assumption. If you imagine some of the people sitting there, like the audacity of someone being able to say, don't think I've come to abolish that. It implies two things. We normally hear people teach on the first. It, it implies that other people are accusing him of this, right? People are accusing Jesus of dismantling the law and the prophets, which happens. uh, Jesus wasn't the first person to head towards Jerusalem claiming to be the Messiah, by the way. There were several. All of them are dead, right? So Jesus is alive, so there's a big difference here, right? And Jesus also uh, matched all of the Messianic prophecies. So there's a lot of differences in, in Christ. But to them, hearing someone come in and teach things, they're used to someone saying, no, 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 no. The law and the prophets are wrong, you need to do this, right? Or they're used to other governments coming in saying, no, 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 the way you guys live life is wrong, you need to live life this way, right? Rome, Hellenization, you get it. And so when Jesus is talking about this, he's saying, the law and the prophets, I haven't come to abolish this. The second thing, though, Jesus is saying is there's an assumption that he could. Don't think that I've come to do that, but I could because I'm God. And, and I don't want to hit too much on that because he doesn't say that. But I think it's interesting that there's this tension of this great teacher. Later on at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they say that he spoke as one with great authority and everyone was focused in on him. Why? Because he had some authority about him that no one else, no of the other teachers had. This poor guy from Nazareth, right? Carpenter's son, he's teaching things that are blowing everyone's mind. They're like, how can you have all this authority? And when he says, no, no, I haven't come to abolish the law, there's this understanding that like, well, of course, no one could do that. Oh, wait, could you? Whoa, whoa, Jesus, what are you saying here? He says, I haven't come to abolish the Torah, all the scriptures. I've come to fulfill them. This is one of the, one of the, you always want to be careful with uh, favorites. And most, it's one of the most powerful things Jesus says, by far. And, and if you unpack it, man, we could talk so long about these verses, and I could just, we, read the book of Romans. Like, Paul works out so hard to make sense of what, what this is saying here with the law and what Jesus is fulfilling. And, and all of the New Testament, there's all these letters written trying to figure out, like, okay, are, do we get circumcised? Do we not get circumcised? Do we eat this meat? Do we not eat this meat? Do we drink wine? Do we not drink wine? It's back and forth, this tension. And Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish, dismantle, break apart any of that. I've come to fulfill it. Say fulfill. 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 He's come to fulfill it. Fulfill what? We got to go back. Remember we had talked about for a while, we had uh, Jesus talked about the kingdom, but then we specifically talked about, when you think about all this, think about the Bible in the line of king, people, reign. King, people, reign. So God's king, he created us to reign with him, right? We saw that in Genesis 1. Uh, God, created, uh, God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, both male and female, he created them. And then he gave them dominion over the earth to rule with him, to reign with him. <clears throat> so that's where we're going. That's what God set up. But we didn't want that. We rebelled. I teach this every week because it's so important. Everything comes back to Genesis 1 through 3. It doesn't make sense otherwise. And so we rebelled, we said we don't want that. And again, you get that in life because you have rebellion. You've been around children who rebel. You are a child that rebels, right? You, you have a proclivity to you to say, I wanna push the red button. There's this thing in you, I gotta do it. I wanna do the bad thing, I wanna do the wrong thing, right? Uh, we have people who get divorces who say, like, oh, I never got to live in my 20s, right, or whatever. So they have this proclivity to do these wrong things. We want to rebel, wanna live our own life. And it's, we might look at it and say, oh, they just wanna go and live in sin, which, which they do. But in their own heart and in your heart, what happens is you want to be free. And what evil said, you could be like God. That's the temptation. We want to be like God. We don't want to be an image bearer. We don't want to be the painting. We want to be the painter. Give me the paintbrush. Give me the thing and let me do it. I, I want to be in control. So this is what happened. We did that. 
And we, we, got, we rebelled, and then insert our kingdom. The kingdom of man is full of what? Sin, death, pain, rebellion, broken kingdoms, wars. Go through history. Are things great? No. That's why we study history, because we don't want it to repeat itself. And then it does over and over and over. We have the same problems over and over and over, right? So here we are, and then God says, I'm going to bring a people to myself. I'm going to bring them to me, and through that people, I'm going to save everyone so that they see my righteousness, and they all come to me. And so he calls us. This is what uh, Nikki and Miss Carrie came up and explained to us, how Israel, he called them out from Egypt, and then they got to Mount Sinai, and there was this tension of complaining and following and trusting and disobedience and all this, and then they had the big golden calf junk where they completely went against what God said, right? And then God gives them the law. Ten of them we're very familiar with, right? The Ten Commandments. You've probably voted or argued at some point in your life whether or not they should be placed in some political realm, right? There's a big tension, right? We, we all know the big ten. But then there's 603 on top of that. 613 laws God gives so that there would be a obedience to him and a trust in him to bring forth righteousness. This is where we get the whole idea that uh, Abraham's faith was seen as righteousness. Paul unpacks that in several different places. This was God's idea. How, uh, say 1,500 years of Israel's history, how'd they do with that? Pass or fail? Massive failure. This is what, I mean, read the Old Testament, right? Those of you who've read these books, you're calling them out. It's constant failure, constant missing it. And so as you read the story, you start getting this idea, oh, there's no hope. This is a tragic tale of God creating humans and wanting a right relationship with them and them wanting to do their own thing. And so they go off and they mess it up. And we have this story time and time again. It's interesting, man. I love how at the deepest level of things you can start seeing connections in all of the narrative of scripture because everything comes back to an objective creator, right? I bet that one of your favorite movies is a story of rebellion and a story of grace, and a story of great sacrifice, and a story of someone getting away from what's right, and then someone else doing what's right for them so that they get back right. This is the sort of thing that happens over and over. Pick a movie, there's some tension there, and there's some hero that's the archetype who's gonna do the right thing and maybe make some great sacrifice for everyone else. It all sounds like scripture over and over. And this is the story we have. It sounds like there's no hope, but the prophets foretold, and God told them over and over, hey, the Lord is gonna make this right. And, and we've read, you know, we, we went through, if you were here and we went through the names of God, we saw God being compassionate and gracious and his love and kindness and how the tension between his justice and his mercy and how that's all going to come together. And every week we came back to who? Jesus. Because that's where all scripture's going, right? We're going to look at Jeremiah 31 this morning. It's going to be on the screen. You can open it in your Bible. This is going to kind of summarize where we've gone. If you remember where we were for several weeks in, in, at Mount Sinai with the golden calf and then God declaring himself, this is who I am. Now we get to later on, God gives this prophecy to Jeremiah. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them, not on tablets of stone, not on a whole bunch of papers that scrolls right over and over and over. I will put my law within them. Just insert whatever analogy you can imagine where something just is insert, put it in them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each of them teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. Oof. For the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins, their sin no more. The old covenant's broken. We didn't do it. We didn't want it, right? Israel's supposed to follow it. They, golden calf, uh, foreign countries, foreign gods, all these things. They didn't want to follow God. And then later on, God prophesies, no, 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 a Messiah's going to come and he's going to make all things right. And when that kingdom comes and, that, and the king brings his people together so that they can reign, what do those people look like? This is the hope of Jeremiah 31. They are people who the law is within them. There's something in their hearts that's different. 
We've talked before about um, uh, the dry bones and how the Spirit spoke into them. Prophesy, and it goes into them. The Spirit of God comes into them, and there's a prophecy of how one day this is how God will move, right? And we talked before about how they have a heart of stone, but God's going to give them a heart of flesh. Something God is doing to change them because their natural posture, my natural posture, your natural posture is rebellion. Give me a rule, a, a rule, a list of rules, and you type A people, you'll be like, ooh, I'm gonna follow it. And you won't, you'll break it, even though you'll pretend like you won't because you're perfect people, you're the ones who follow the rules, right? But you give people like me a list of rules, and I'm gonna give you a list of all the ways that I can get around them, right? Because that's, that's my, my nature. But then all of us break them, regardless, whether we're trying to be perfect or whether we're naturally wanting to be the cool, rebellious person, put on your leather jacket, ugh, whatever. Um, there's an old movie I was gonna try to quote, but I don't remember it now. Uh, anyway. We all want to rebel. And then God says, Jeremiah, I will put my law within them, right on their hearts. And they won't need to say, know the Lord. They shall all know me. The hope was that there would be Jeremiah 31 people. You can bet that the people listening to Jesus were familiar with these scriptures. They've heard these verses. They know the law. They know the prophets. Maybe not as well as the Pharisees and scribes. Certainly not as well. But they've heard these stories. They heard the hope of the Messiah. They heard that one day someone would come and make all these things right. And he would write their law within them. Something about them would change. Maybe they would be like Moses or David or Elisha. So it seems so transformed by God's spirit. That was the hope. All people would be transformed. Now Jesus comes and he says, hey, all those things you've read in scripture, all of them, I fulfill them. They're in me. Do you understand this tension? They're on a mountainside, a whole bunch of poor people, outsiders gathered, broke, Jesus healed some of them, lame people, paralytics, schizophrenics, all these people. Maybe it also implies that there's some Gentiles in there because of the regions they're in. It says crowds, which typically in the Bible, something like that, we talk about it could be hundreds of people. So we don't know. Maybe there's some scribes and Pharisees. There are a eclectic group of people, but we know for sure that a lot of them were poor, broken people, right? And then maybe some people on the other spectrum. And Jesus says to all of them, I have fulfilled all of this scripture. Here on this mountainside, dirty roads, we're all broken people, I've fulfilled it. Now hopefully you're catching the absurdity of this, the tension. What, what do you mean you've fulfilled all these things, that, that you'll write the law in our hearts, that you'll make all things right? Do you not see all the brokenness around us, Jesus? I think, I think it's really important when we read these words of Jesus. In fact, I would love for you to remember this beyond anything else today. I think Jesus is teaching us how to read scripture here. He's teaching all of them how to read scripture. And I think we need to talk for just a moment about how we read scripture. What does that mean? Uh, because I think we all read scripture in a lot of ways. To do that, we're gonna go to our handy dandy notebook. Lose clues, anyone? Nope, just me, that's okay. All right, uh, how do people read the Bible? I've got my own list, I don't want you guys to shout out. I know the book references got you all really nervous. So, people read the Bible in several different ways. Um, some people read it formatively. Formatively. They read the Bible formatively. These sort of people are uh, reading the Bible to say, I hope that when I open scripture to anything, that something falls in me personally, emotionally, relationally, that helps me be formed in some way. The best version of that is to be formed in the image of Christ. A lot of times that version is, I want to get through this week. My job stinks. I don't like my spouse. My kids stink. Open the book. Maybe the Bible have the verse of the day that makes me feel... Good. All right, read the Bible formatively. Good and bad versions of that. Some people read the Bible uh, informationally. Informationally. That's probably not how you spell that, but it's close enough. Informationally. These are the Bible nerds. Ah, right? Here in a minute, I'm going to tell you what a uh, iota and dot is. Those are these sort of people, right? These are the people who are like, like, man, I got to know the historical settings and how it all connects, and, and I'm going to study the languages, and, and I got to understand the information. I cannot possibly know what the Bible means unless I know the deep knowledge of its history. Nothing wrong with that, uh, but that becomes the focus, and of course, those things can be extreme. You have people who read the Bible canonically. Oh, that's another word to spell canonically. Some of you just come to see how bad I spell things. Canonically and historically. 
These people, uh, maybe their natural proclivity when they're reading the Bible is to say, hey, how does it fit into the grand scheme of history? How does it fit into the grand scheme of the Bible? What, is, what does this make sense? Who is Jesus in reference to all of scripture? These different things, they're trying to make sense of how this fits in the grand scheme of human history. Here's one that you all love because we've had a lot of political seasons where everyone's arguing and yelling about masks and President Trump and all these things. Uh, some people read the Bible uh, socially and politically. Politically, these people want to make the Bible all about how our society should be formed, how our politics should be formed, and if we can find the right verses and appoint the right leaders, then we'll have the right things happen. Bob Drunkle, amen, here's our government, right? And so this is the whole idea of having social, political things in the Bible, and then they read the Bible through that lens. And then, <laughs> here's, here's my favorite. Um, I'm just gonna write guru. We read the Bible based off our favorite guru, right? So we have, uh, um, I'm gonna step down here, right? I've got N.T. Wright, um, Piper, Fran Chan. Feel free to cheer if I mention your favorite one. Fran Chan, um, Mackey, huh? Any Tim Mackey people? I like Tim Mackey. Uh, Willard, someone sent me a Dallas Willard quote this week. Um, Calvinism, we'll do that. Yeah, let's do Calvin and uh, Arminian. We're going to write Arm because Ian is hard to spell. Uh, Calvin, Arminianism, uh, whatever else, right? So you get it. So they're reading the Bible saying, okay, I've read this, but I don't really understand it until N.T. Wright tells me how to live my life. I don't really understand the Bible unless I'm watching a Francis Chan video, right? You get it. Some of you are sitting here like, Dave, this is so boring. Why are you talking about this? Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Because we say that there are three things that you need to measure your life on all the time. You measure your life on your relationship with uh, prayer, scripture, and church, right? You can't have just one. If you just have church, then we become a social club that does nothing helpful at all. If we just have prayer, then we become selfish thinking that we're close to God and no one else is. And who do you pray to then? You're praying to a God that you created. If you just have scripture, you think you've interpreted it, you figured it out, and you become arrogant and think you, you know everything because you found the right ways of God because you read more scripture than everyone else. If you have all three, you have a humility to understand your relationship with God is guided by scripture, but your scripture is understanding this open-handed idea of I don't really get scripture. I struggle with it. I need people to help me understand it. So we gather as the church and scripture teaches us that we must be together as the church because we are the salt and light of the earth, not you, we, right? So you need prayer, scripture, and church. And some of you would say, I don't know how to read scripture. We talk about this all the time and my mo the most, be honest, is the last time you read scripture when we read it last Sunday? Why? Maybe you don't have motivation for it. Maybe you don't know how to read scripture. Maybe it bothers you. Or maybe you don't like reading scripture unless you have a specific devotion telling you how to lead your life, which is not a problem. But if that's the only way you read scripture, who says that person's right? How do you know? And then Jesus comes along and says, I fulfilled all of scripture. Which of these ways is right? In a sense, all of them, right? But also, if you take any one of them by themselves, it's not super helpful. Francis Chan can sure help me with some formative thoughts and maybe some social political thoughts, but, but I can get off there. And we could all, I could go through this list and tell you all through history different ways people have picked different ways, and they've gone nuts about it. We have entire religions and denominations in our city and all over the world that are formed just focusing on one of these things. And Jesus says, you want to understand how to read scripture? It's all about me. I'm going to write just the most pastor cheesy thing I've probably ever wrote and written on here, but I'm going to do it because I think it's important. All of the Bible is his story. Ugh, right? History, but it's all his story. Let me clarify that in case someone like is... Uh, takes the wrong picture. It's like, oh, who's his? Jesus, right? This is all Jesus. It is his story, Jesus. Jesus is telling us how to read the Bible. Every time you open your Bible, the first question you should be asking is, what does this say about the gospel? Because King Jesus came to say, this is the gospel of the kingdom. Everything is the kingdom. Everything comes back to me. He says, don't think I've come to abolish these things. I have fulfilled them. Church, non-church people, never read the Bible people, open the Bible and ask yourself, what does this say about Jesus? And let it frustrate you. Let it bring doubt, confusion, tension. Let it be this thing where you open, you say, why in the world is Psalms talking about dashing babies' heads against rocks? I thought Jesus came to die to save people. Let those things settle in your heart. Because God says, I'm big enough to deal with your doubt, I'm big enough to deal with your frustration, and everything comes back to Jesus Christ. And then read the gospel. This is what Jesus is doing. I can't, man, I wish we could just camp on this point. 
because Jesus is teaching us how to read the Bible. And the first thing he's saying is all of this is fulfilled in me. If you want to make sense of scripture, you have to start with Jesus. And you'll learn very quickly that scripture isn't about you personally. It's about us, and it's ultimately about his glory, about God. Scripture is about God's glory seen through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20. We're going to have this verse come up a couple times. Write it on your forearm this week. Don't really, that'll get your parents mad at you. But 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We don't utter amen for our glory. We don't utter amen so people look at us. Let other people see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. Find a promise of God. There's so many books out there written about it. There's so many promises in there. And maybe in your life you've read something in the Psalms about God healing you and you're not healed. You're still struggling with addiction or depression or, or maybe you found verses about how, oh, this is what a, 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 a good wife looks like. My wife's not a Proverbs 31 woman. Dear gosh, I can't stand her, right? You, you find these things, and you look in scripture, and you're frustrated, and then you read this verse that says, all of their promises find their yes in him. When you read scripture, you have to come back to Jesus. Otherwise, you make scripture what you think and what you want. You're missing it. Jesus says, I have fulfilled it. In light of that, we've got to talk about the rest of the verses. I know we're going to run out of time here, but we're going to try to go through them. Right after Jesus says, I fulfilled them, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, Joe, throw up my, my weird picture here. Iota and dot. So some of you uh, older translations say jot and tittle, right? Jot and tittle. What an interesting verse. I feel like that's such an old, that's what my grandpa says. Like, whatever, like, uh, jot and tittle. But anyway, I think that was King James. Uh, Iota and dot. Here's what we're talking about here. You have, um, oh man, I gotta say this right or Nathan's gonna judge me. Raish, uh, Raish and Doddle. There we go. So here you see Arash and Doddle. This is Hebrew language. If you want to know way more about it, talk to Nathan because he goes to school for this sort of stuff. But here's what happens. What is the difference between this letter that's circled on the left and this letter that's circled on the right? A little line. You see it? It's a, little, it's a jolt and tittle, right? This is what we're talking about. Here, we'll get up here. <clears throat> Gobi, uh, right, right here. Uh, Jordan, you see it? That's a little line right there, right? And so that is the difference between um, uh, the, the resh, which is the R, right? As in ra'u, they see, or adam, the D, which is the dottle, right? Uh, which is human. And so then this word Adam becomes Iram, which is a neighboring country of somewhere, Israel, um, without that little line, right? So, we don't have this language. This doesn't mean much to you. You guys are just like, ooh, neat Bible nerd thing, right? Tell your friends that we read the Dead Sea Scrolls today. Anyway, whew, that jump. Whew. Okay, we're back. Uh, so, when Jesus is saying jot and tittle, when he's saying dot iota, he's literally referring to these itty-bitty lines. And they didn't have, you know, uh, uh, autocorrect or whatever, right? So they had moments like this where they completely write things and it looks completely ridiculous because of bad handwriting or misspelling. And so a little misspelling like this completely changes the word. Are we talking about Adam or are we talking about a neighboring country? That would completely change the words, right? And so when Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill it, none of this will pass away until it's all accomplished. How does it all get accomplished? Through Jesus. And he's saying, these itty bitty things, the smallest stroke, it gets accomplished through me. I find that super interesting. Maybe that was a, a nerdy waste, but I thought that was pretty cool. Nothing will pass until all is accomplished. Following Jesus is somehow tied to following the law and prophets. And that should concern you because there's 613 of those laws. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments or teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Hebrew uh, teachers had this way of saying least and great. And a lot of times there's a way of saying outsiders and insiders. And so although he's saying least in the kingdom of heaven, to be least in the kingdom of heaven would be to be outside of the kingdom of heaven. That's what these phrases mean. And so we might be thinking there's like layers of the kingdom of heaven. So you have like, ah, these are the upper class 
the upper crust people of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Oh, the lower class. No, 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 that's not, there's not classes in the kingdom of heaven, right? And we see that later in scripture where Paul says, oh, there's no distinction, you know, uh, Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, Barbian, Scythian, everyone comes under Christ, right? So Jesus is saying, no, 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 the least are those who are actually cast out. And this is a phrase we talked about last week. Jesus is going to use this idea over and over and over. Those are those who are inside the kingdom and those who are cast out. They're thrown out like bad salt that gets trampled. This is the idea he's talking about. Following Jesus means following his commandments, which he fully intends for us to do. And then specifically, that has eternal ramifications. For some reason, if you're not following Jesus' commands, if you're not changed by him, then you're least in the kingdom of heaven, meaning you're cast out of it. And some of us then, we should be connecting the dots and say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't follow Jesus very well. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm cast out. Jesus goes on to say, for I tell you, here's the big verse, get ready, buckle up. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be outsiders. You'll never get in. You'll certainly be least unless what? Your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, in case you haven't heard, scribes and Pharisees were the boss, preacher, awesome people of the day. Everyone wanted to be like them and know what they knew. Uh, it'd be so great if you could be called to be in the process to be like them as a young kid. They were the superstars. And they knew all of it. They knew all the law. They, they practiced it. They memorized it. And to them, memorizing it and obediently following it equaled righteousness for them. But then they didn't just follow the 613. You might have heard this before. They actually added several hundred to it. They had over 1,000, 1,500 plus laws that they would keep to avoid breaking the 613. They were adding to it, completely missing the mark. Saying, man, we, we got to figure this out. We're going to make sure we never break these laws of God, so God will look at us be righteous. And then Jesus says, unless you are more perfect than the perfect people that you know to be perfect, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, later on, Jesus specifically says, be perfect as your father is perfect. He'll say that near the end when we uh, get, through, get through in about four, four or five weeks. We'll talk about that. How can we be more righteous than that, Jesus? And again, those of you who've been in church, you, you, you're going to so quickly be like, no, this is just grace, man. We just all covered grace. We'll talk about that here in a minute because there's a trap there. Something must be off with the Pharisees and scribes for Jesus to say this. They must be missing something. Jesus mentions the law and the prophets another time in Scripture. We've talked about it here before. I'm going to read it. He also talks about scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. We're going to look at Matthew 22, 34 through 39. How can we be more righteous than, Jesus, uh, than, than the, the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus? How can we be Jeremiah 31 people who have your law written in our hearts? What are you talking about? Matthew 22, 34 through 39. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This is an expert in the law, right? Not a lawyer in the way we would think about it. Someone who knows all the law better than everyone. And they're always arguing, these people, who, what is, what is the greatest commandment? This is a pretty common question they're about to ask him. Because if we know the greatest one, we'll have the greatest honor before God, and he'll be greatly happy with us. They say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? 613 laws, what's the greatest, Jesus? What do you think's awesome, you know? Uh, it'd be like asking a basketball player, what's the best play on the court or whatever? It's just such an intense, kind of ridiculous question in a sense. Jesus says to him, quoting Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Hold on, Westerners. We hear, oh, there's two commandments. They ask for one, and Jesus is giving extra credit. Jesus, the Greek here, he's saying one commandment. The second is like it. Not meaning, oh, it's a similar thought, meaning, no, it is just as important. In fact, it is also the greatest commandment. You want the greatest commandment? Here's two things. Love God Love your neighbor as yourself. Then what does he say? On these two commands depends what? All the law and prophets. What is law? Torah. 613 laws, right? Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish that. I've come to fulfill that. What does he say all of them rests on? Loving God and loving others. Now we're starting to understand these Jeremiah 39 people, this posture that changes your heart. Loving God, loving others. So what does this love look like? We come back to Jesus. 
What did Jesus show us love to be? The Bible tells us God is love, greater love hath no man than this. Uh, constantly look at Jesus' love. What does Jesus do? Jesus gives everything away. Sacrifice. Love is commitment and sacrifice. We see that through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, then he dies. He brings us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters you, and then you're able to make sense of the world. All of a sudden, you have a new nature, heart changes. In fact, Jesus said when we talked about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 6, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sent in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Go back. Jeremiah 31. I will put my law, I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them. Not a list of things you've got to do. You're screwing it up. Do better. Look at this list. You figure it out. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit comes. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I've said to you. Jesus says, when I give you the gift, when the Father gives you the gift of the Spirit, the Spirit will enter you. Later on, he says, I'll make my home in you. And that Spirit teaches you all things and reminds you all things I've taught you. What are the things Jesus taught us? The fulfillment of the law. He taught us the fulfillment of all things, which is what? The law of the prophets can all be summed up into what? Loving God and loving other people. If you're looking at all of these things and you're hearing these things of Jesus and you're thinking, I can't follow these 613 laws. I can't follow the 10 commandments. I can't love other people because I'm a big buffoon. I'm a big selfish jerk who does all the wrong things. I have a natural proclivity to rebel against things. You've already told me that, Pastor David. I don't know how to make sense of this. Then Jesus comes along and he says, the Holy Spirit will enter you. He will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you only know these things. Maybe this is your only understanding of the Bible. Something that you've crafted, something that you've read to make sense to you. You don't know the kingdom. Maybe Jesus has never changed your heart in a way that the Spirit has entered you and you're having this natural growth towards love, loving the Lord, loving others. There's two traps that we fall in in this, and then we're going to close. One trap when we start talking about all of these things. And we, man, we talk about anger next week, and then we'll talk about uh, sex, and then we'll talk about divorce. There's this trap where we, we would naturally want to say, oh, well, nothing matters because all is grace, and I have what I need in Jesus, and so I don't have to do anything else. I just, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace, so nothing else is required of me. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus specifically says that if you relax one of the least of these commandments, you'll be called least in the kingdom. There's a concern there. How, how, how do we do that then? Jesus has to change our hearts. You can't have this attitude. You can't be hit by an 18-wheeler and say, oh, nothing changed in my life. If you know Jesus Christ, then your heart has changed. He has written his law in you. You have a natural desire. It doesn't mean you're perfect because you're poor in spirit. The other trap that we fall in is the other extreme, and we say, well, I still got to uphold the law. I got to know these things. Let's make sure we, we all still learn the Ten Commandments and we follow all these things. And so quickly, in your passionate zeal to follow Jesus, you're becoming like God. You become like God because you've followed Jesus and you've done all the right things. And then nothing is fulfilled in Jesus, it's fulfilled in you. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.21 where he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. I memorized originally in the NIV. I think it's Christ died for nothing. It's such an empowerful thought. If, if you could do it on your own, if you could make this work, if we could be a people, ah, oh, it's the wrong page. Where's it at? It doesn't matter. If we could be a people on our own to get to the kingdom, Christ died for nothing. And clearly Christ died for something. Christ died because we can't do it on our own. We can't make sense of it. Both of these pitfalls of trying to be good enough or saying, ah, I'm not good enough, it's just all in Jesus, and then I don't have to do anything else. Both of them lead to being about you. I made you say this last week, say it's not about me. Please walk out of here believing that it's not about you. Think of the freedom that is. Being a good parent is not about you, it's about Jesus. Being a good spouse is not about you, it's about Jesus because Jesus didn't come so that you could fulfill the greatness of your family. Don't go to some men's retreat that teaches you to be a Christian man so you could go home and be an awesome man. Don't go to some gathering of women where you can do the things women do when they gather and get really motivated about a couple verses in Proverbs so that then you go and be this perfect woman. That's not what Jesus said. 
Jesus said that he fulfills it. And if you're sitting here today and you're still trying to do these things, you know the heaviness of what Jesus is saying. Your righteousness isn't getting you anywhere and you're outside of the kingdom. May God lay that on your heart this morning. May you feel the weight of the law. May you feel the pressure of the things that you can't do so that we end up in this posture. May we be poor in spirit. Church, may we be the kind of church that constantly has this posture and says, hey, you know what you're struggling with? Your depression, your fear, your anxiety, your gay, whatever thing that we probably say, this is the big deal that our church is gonna fight against, stop. Open your hands and say that we're all poor in spirit and we need Jesus. Jesus comes to fulfill it. Not Memorial, not David, not you. So what do we do? What do we do with this? We're gonna move into a time of worship after I've yelled and gotten real passionate and tried to hold back, getting too pumped here. Every week, you're gonna hear me teach you this posture because I need it. If you were to catch me in my secret moments every week, you'll see me doing this. Because by the end of today, it's gonna be about David again. It's gonna orbit me. My job, my responsibilities, my Murph workout I gotta do tomorrow, my dinner I've gotta cook, my family that I've gotta make be good enough for y'all, or my message, maybe my sermon stunk, whatever. It's gonna be about me again. And I constantly have to do this, and remember, I am poor in spirit. I've got nothing. I've only got debt. And I come before Jesus and I open my hands and I pray that every week as we read these things, it's only going to get harder, guys. Jesus is going to talk about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving our enemies. Every week, may we say, man, only Jesus can fulfill these things. May we understand the depths of our sin and brokenness so that we understand the power and beauty of our Savior and we come to him open-handedly and say, I need Jesus. I need his spirit to enter me to change my heart because I can't change my own heart. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. As we move to a time of response right now, as we worship, I pray that you would, you would take time to ask God, man, where am I finding my yes in Jesus? What does it look like to open my hands and say, man, I, I want to hold on to some of these truths that I've heard in Scripture. Maybe you don't even know because you, you've just heard people talk about Scripture. Say, I want to hold on to God loving me. I want to hold on to things getting better. I want to hold on to this, that, and the other. I want my marriage to get better. I want my, my kids to be nicer. I want my anxiety to go away. Open your hands. Find your yes in Jesus. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. He says that he will enter you. He will change your heart. He will bring a people to him, and then we will reign with him, through him. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I pray you give your life to him, that you would let him, his spirit, come into you and transform you. If you aren't a part of a, uh, a gospel-preaching church that seeks the kingdom above all things, I pray that you would join a church. Join this church. Message us online. Come forward. We'll talk about it. We need each other. We need to be growing these postures together. Maybe you just need to open your hands this morning and worship God as we sing. We're going to stand, I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. God, I pray that you would guide us as we respond. Help us to make sense of these challenging scriptures, these words that you utter, Jesus, through the, all the words that, that I say, all the things that you've laid on my heart, all the things that we're reading in scripture. God, I pray your spirit would make sense of the word, that we would hear your words, we would remember your words this morning, and that it would draw us near to you, to open our hands, say, God, we need you. Only you can fulfill, and you have death, your resurrection. We worship you in that. Thank you that you're with us always. Thank you that all authority in heaven and earth is yours. May we believe that. And I pray for anyone in this room that needs to give their life to you, that needs to make any decision for you, whatever that looks like, that you would give us the boldness, the humility, the poverty of spirit to open our hands to do what you're calling us to do. May your spirit move as we worship you.